Well, I hope that you found last week's material to be beneficial. Last week we covered, of course, the uh, doctrines of God and of man. And I say beneficial because I'm hesitant to say that last week might have been encouraging. Anytime that we look at God's infinite holiness, which is amazing, and we compare that to man's absolute sinfulness, we find ourselves in uh, quite a bit of a predicament where it's difficult to be encouraged, but I, I hope that you found that beneficial. You know, biblical evangelism must cover these brutal facts. In order to evangelize faithfully, God's holiness must be contrasted with man's sinfulness. Without sharing this, there, there's no good news to offer because the sinner will not know that he's actually in fact an enemy and hater of God, Romans 1.30. You know, lifeboats seem irrelevant to those who don't know that the ship is sinking. If you would, take your memory cards. If you have a workbook, and I hope that you do, let's go to the very back and look at these memory cards. You know, these cards are excellent. I love these cards. These cards are the boiled down version of the gospel. It's all 45 minutes of each of these lessons boiled down in summary form. These cards are the fundamentals of the gospel faith. You know, in basketball, my daughter went to basketball camp not long ago and she came home and she taught us about triple threat. Does anybody know what the triple threat position is? Some basketball players in here, Jake, I'm looking at you. You know what's up. Yeah, from the triple threat position, you can either pass the ball, you can dribble the ball, or you can shoot the ball. And it's a fundamental position that even children can learn. Well, in the same way, these cards are the fundamentals of the gospel. They may seem rudimentary, but in fact, if you commit these to memory, there's no doubt that you will be adequately equipped to share a robust gospel message with unbelievers. You know, as Ben mentioned last week, it's highly possible that in our efforts to fulfill the Great Commission and tell others about Christ, we may tee up a gospel presentation, but it will be out of sequence. You may not start with God's holiness, but don't fear. If you have these cards memorized, it's easy to maneuver through these conversations and present the full gospel. And for what it's worth, these are the very same cards that you'll receive at the Master's Seminary when you sign up for their evangelism class. So I can't encourage you enough, please, please commit these cards to memory. So let's look over the cards. First of which is God. God created and owns everything. He is perfectly holy and he requires perfect obedience to his law. Man has broken God's law. Man will pay the eternal penalty for sin and man cannot save himself from his good works. Lord willing, We'll be encouraged today as we look at our next two cards, our next two doctrines, the first of which is Christ. If you have your workbooks, Christ, Jesus came to earth as both God and sinless man. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. 
Biblical evangelism requires that we inform people that Jesus is God. And the following verses that we're about to discuss are gonna be your go-to verses for anyone who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ. This can be a Jehovah's Witness, a Muslim, a Mormon, a coworker, or a cousin. It doesn't matter. Anyone who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, these are where we wanna go. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, the people to whom Jesus were speaking, the religious leaders of the time, they would have known this was a claim to deity because we see them angry, picking up stones, ready to kill Jesus on a charge of blasphemy. Also, we have John 1.1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Also the great kenosis passage in Philippians where Jesus empties himself out, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, who although he, speaking of Jesus, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is eternally God, Lord over all. But Jesus is also man. So we look at Christ's humanity. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Now here we've come upon what's often referred to as the hypostatic union. And please don't feel compelled to use that terminology when you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, but be certain to communicate the idea or the concept. God the Son took on a human nature. You know, here's an interesting thought. Jesus has not eternally existed. God the Son has eternally existed, but Jesus was born in time. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoptions as sons. Though completely God, Jesus was also completely man. He encountered every type of trial, temptation, emotion, and hardship that we do, yet without sin. He was completely holy, yet also fully human. He was sinless, but also sympathetic. Tempted, but invincible. For a season, Jesus set aside some of his divine privileges, such as his, uh, his heavenly glory and his independent authority in order to submit to the Father's will and coming to earth as both God and man. 
So Jesus came to earth as both God and man, but he came with a purpose. Jesus died on the cross to pay sin's penalty and to restore us to a relationship with God. Since God is loving, gracious, and merciful, he has provided a way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world or, or loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So here we are, we've reached the pinnacle of our gospel message. Christ is the sin bearer. Once again, it's not crucial to use this terminology, but it's critically important that we affirm this doctrine and espouse it, and that is penal substitutionary atonement. Without it, God is either not just or man is not forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sinless son of God was treated as if he was a sinner. He took on himself the penalty of all those who would repent. He was sinless but he paid the penalty for all who would believe. The result is that we who repent and believe receive his righteousness. John MacArthur says, he bore our sin so that we can bear his righteousness. This death or the payment for sin's penalty provides the only way for sinners to have a restored relationship with God. Because sin separates man from a holy God, sin must be paid for in order to be reconciled. In other words, Jesus died so that sinners could be restored with the purpose for which they were created. And that is to enjoy unhindered fellowship with their creator. When we consider the links that both God the Father and God the Son have gone to, to secure our everlasting joy, we see clearly God's love for all of humanity. The Father willingly sending his Son to die and the son willingly laying down his life, bearing the full exercise of God's wrath in our place so that we can be brought back to God. First Peter 3.18 says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. First Peter 2.24 and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. And lastly, Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. Christ's sacrifice atoned for the sins of everyone who believes in him, buying them back, atoning for the penalty that sin has incurred. Jesus' sacrifice was a payment. 
and I don't, none of y'all probably have to worry about this, but if I'm honest, there is a particular time of month when I get to the gas station to buy my $4 Coke that I get a little antsy swiping my debit card, you know, like if, if the bills hit that day or the day before and I've forgotten to move money over, I'm scared to death that I'm gonna be standing in line for this $4 Coke now, and they're gonna tell me that the payment was declined. Well, penal substitutionary atonement sounds excellent, but how do we know that it was sufficient? How do we know that Christ's sacrifice was accepted, payment accepted? Well, Jesus rose from the grave and is alive today. 1 Corinthians 15, three through four. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to the Father and is now Lord over all. He gives mercy to whomever he gives mercy and he reigns in love over all who are united to him. But here's a question. Here's a question. Why is it, I ask you, why is it important that we include the resurrection of Christ in a gospel presentation? Why do we need to include the resurrection in a gospel presentation? Anybody have any ideas? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yes. The resurrection is God's undeniable proof to all men, as you're saying, that Jesus' sacrifice was indeed accepted and sufficient to provide salvation for anyone who would believe. Acts 17, 30 through 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection and exaltation is also proof of Christ's lordship. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want you to, to, to listen to this, of course. Look at this, Christ's resurrection, Jesus being risen from the dead, is identified in 1 Peter as the means of the believer's rebirth unto a living hope. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the resurrection assures us that Jesus is alive today, and not only alive today, but he will soon return to judge those who have not obeyed the gospel. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven through eight says, to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
Jesus Christ is the only one who can save us from hell, the only one who can forgive us of our sins, and the only one who can restore us back into relationship with the Father. So I ask, is the doctrine of Christ something important for us to think about this morning? Is, is all of that just head knowledge or is that something that we can rejoice in? When we consider eternal God leaving the heavens, coming to earth, being born as a man, taking on our likeness, being tempted in every way, going to the cross, bearing the full exercise of God's wrath, does that stir something inside of you or is that just water off a duck's back? Honestly, I'm tempted to be, like, even now, like, like Peter at the transfiguration and say, let's just build a tent and camp out here and just spend a little more time here. But honestly, we're, we're studying how to share the gospel so we have more truth to communicate and we need to press on. You must repent and believe. Now we're moving on to the sinner's card of our memory cards. You must repent and believe. It's time that we now bring together all that we have learned and discussed. How does a person become cleansed of sin and, and become restored to the Father? Well, the scriptures clearly teach that a man must be born again from above. This new birth is a sovereign work of God's grace and all men are spiritually dead and only God by his spirit can accomplish this miraculous act. Where might we go in scripture to uh, support this claim that all men are spiritually dead. Where's somewhere that we could go? Romans 3.23. Yes, sir. For all have sinned and fallen short. Yeah, Ephesians 2. There's many places we can go. And even though we're dead, here's the thing, we're still responsible to God and accountable to him. That's Romans 14.12. But the question is, even though we're dead in sin, what are we responsible to do? How did Jesus begin his ministry? Baptizing people, yes. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we want to be very careful. We want to use biblical language when we're talking about faith with others. There truly is no biblical precedent, precedent to uh, invite someone and ask them to accept Jesus or to invite them into their heart. Really what that is, is that's an analogy taken from two different places in scripture. That's, that's John 1:12, which says, but as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, and also Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Typically, in the English language, when we're speaking of receiving, it's usually in a passive sense. It's something that happens to us. But in the Bible, when this word for receive is used, especially in the context with another person, it's always in an active sense. To receive someone as a guest means that you are to host them and you are to take care of them, taking care of their needs. Receive, and John 1.12 means that we acknowledge Jesus' claims, place our faith in him, and thereby yield our allegiance to him. Listen to this John 1.12, if we read verse 11 before it. He, Jesus, 
came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Do you see that active sense of receiving there? Well, once the un unbeliever uh, understands the gospel message, we have to call him to repent. So we ask, do you understand this gospel presentation, this gospel message? Do you understand what it is that I'm telling you? And they can say no. And if they say no, we explain again, God is creator and owner of everything. He is sinless. He requires perfect obedience and you are sinful and you will pay the full penalty for sin and you're unable to save yourself. Christ, the sinless son of God, paid sin's penalty for all who repent and trust in him for their acceptance with God the Father. Do you see your need for salvation through Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you understand that Jesus Christ is our only hope of escaping God's judgment, finding forgiveness and being restored with relationship? It's our only hope of eternal life. If so, then you must repent and believe. What are some reasons, right? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a strong thing to say to someone. So I wanna ask and open it up. What are some reasons that you and I may shy away from presenting a robust, strong gospel presentation like that with someone? What are some things that hinder us from presenting the gospel in that manner? Okay, loss of a friend, fear of rejection. <laughs> yes, absolutely, yes. We know that we too are sinners and that's something that we share with them but it's easy for them to not see the need if it's something we're telling them. Yeah, so fear of man, pride, personal pride, fear of embarrassment. There are many reasons that we struggle to share, the evangel uh, to evangelize biblically but here's what's most important. Do you shy away from presenting the gospel because of fear or unbelief? Fear or unbelief. If you fear, take courage because God is sovereign over his salvation plan and he can use any means that he desires to bring about his purposes, including fearful Christians like you and like me. But one thing that God will not do is use a false gospel to renew an unbeliever's heart. So I'd like to take just a moment, even now, if you'd bow with me, I'd like to pray for us and ask God to embolden us to share the gospel robustly and powerfully and biblically like we're learning to do now. Well, Lord, it is a, it is a privilege to be adopted as a son and daughter of yours and to be tasked with this great commission. But Lord, if we are honest, there are so many times where we fear and we are hesitant. And Lord, we don't want to be that way. We want to be faithful, so even now as we're, we're learning about this material, we, we don't wanna pass by without asking for your blessing, for, for your strength to communicate in love and charity and kindness this gospel message that we're learning. I pray that these conversations would happen all across North Lake and they'd be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, next in our presentation of the gospel, we must call them to repent of all that dishonors God. Paul describes two different types of repentance. 
He describes one which is false and it leads to death and he, re, he describes one which is genuine and leads to eternal life. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal and vindication in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this manner. Worldly sorrow comes from getting caught and it's purely motivated by fear of consequence and being found out. It's scared of punishment. It doesn't respect God. Mere human remorse has no saving capacity and it only leads to eternal damnation. MacArthur rightly describes worldly sorrow simply as wounded pride. We see this type of repentance coming from the religious leaders who came to John for baptism. We see this type of repentance with Judas after Jesus' betrayal. Outward expressions motivated only by the desire to avoid judgment. Repenting only to avoid circumstances and escape trouble does not indicate in the least saving faith. But there is a second type of sorrow and it's godly sorrow. What is true repentance? What is true repentance? Anybody tell me what true repentance is? It's a bold task. True repentance is turning from sin and turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's not simply recognizing something that you didn't realize earlier because simple head knowledge doesn't save anyone and it doesn't change anything in our lives. Repentance as characterized in scripture begins with recognizing one's utter sinfulness, turning from self and sin to God. Repentance requires a full submission of the entire person to Christ. It's more than behavior modification. Repentance is submission of the will, ambition, and eternal hope to our creator. We must clearly state the full meaning of repentance or else the unbeliever may think that salvation is gained by an impulsive act, by something like filling out a card, walking an aisle, or simply reciting a prayer. Too often, and I know you've seen this, evangelism is often judged on its effectiveness at how many quote unquote decisions were made rather than the clarity of the message given. The church continues to swell with unbelievers who have never truly repented and they look back on an event in their life that gives them assurance of salvation when in fact they know nothing of true repentance. True repentance seeks to identify all areas in our life that do not glorify God and bring them into submission of his will, asking him for help. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Repentance also involves counting the cost. Repentance may require uh, abandoning sinful relationships, changing your 
circle of friends. It may require giving up uh, immoral business practices. Repentance affects every part of us in all that we do. Luke 9.23 says, and he was saying to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 14, 26 and 28, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost and see if he has enough to complete it? Christ is saying that our love for others should not even come close to our love for God. If you have a workbook, I encourage you to read this with me. This is an incredible quote by A.W. Tozer about taking up your cross. It's affected me greatly. Tozer said, the old cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise. It modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man, completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. This is what we're calling men to. This is what God is calling men to. This counting of the cost, though, results in the promise of Jesus in Matthew 10, 39, when he said, he who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Eternal life is promised to those who abandon worldly pursuits and submit entirely to Christ. This is why forsaking worldly pleasures is not a problem for the Christian. We are giving up that which brings no lasting satisfaction for that which brings everlasting joy. We may very well suffer all things, but gain Christ. Repentance involves confession of sin to God that results in forgiveness. And today we're learning that to confess, to confess sin, this is how we do it. To confess sin is to say the same thing about sin that God says and to acknowledge his perspective on it. It means we recognize it, that it's heinous and repentance involves seeking and pleading with God for his forgiveness. Acts 8.22, therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Now to be forgiven is to have complete purification from unrighteousness based on Christ's righteousness which is freely imputed to us. Forgiveness from God means he releases us from sin's penalty because Christ paid the penalty on the cross. Our stain of sin becomes blotted out and is replaced with Christ's righteousness and there is no limitation of God's forgiveness to the man or woman who is truly repentant. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Christian life is marked by a continual confession of sin and forgiveness thereby granted by God. Yes, sir. If possible, you have to direct me to that. On this slide here? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not certain. I don't see that in the slide, but it's clear from Scripture that if we turn to him with true repentance, he's there to, you know, the prodigal son, he's come running back to us immediately. I don't, I don't unless that was a typo in the, in the slides, I'm not sure. So, in biblical evangelism, we are calling men and women to repent but also to believe. Repent and believe. Believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. True repentance won't merely be a solemn attitude or recognition of sin, nor is it simply a decision that we make that bears no fruit in our lives. Repentance is a wholesale forsaking of everything we trust and a turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Ephesians 2.8.9, for by the grace of God, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone may boast. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. And it will be demonstrated. Faith is always, always, always demonstrated with obedience. Not in perfection, but in persistence, in direction. Notice also in your, in your workbooks, if you have them, Spurgeon's words. Spurgeon said so many great things. Here he said, often do I hear it said, love Jesus, dear children. That's not the gospel. It is trust him, believe. Not love, but faith is the saving grace. Faith is taking God at his word and obeying him. A life of faith is repulsed by sin and it rejoices in the mercy and grace of God offered to us. Also, faith is not just mere head knowledge of certain facts. If that was true, then there would be demons that possessed faith. We see that in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Having faith in Jesus as Savior means recognizing his Death as paying the penalty for sin and depending on his righteousness for our acceptance with God. Having faith in Jesus as Lord means believing in his resurrection and submitting your entire life to his authority. Now in our study of and biblical evangelism, we've now covered God's holiness, man's sinfulness, 
Jesus' offer of salvation and man's need of repentance. So finally, we come to the point where we ask, unbeliever, will you repent and believe in Jesus or remain under God's wrath? It's important that we realize there is no spiritual Switzerland. There is no gospel neutrality. The unbeliever that we're talking to and that we love so dearly is dead in their sin. It's important that we remind the unbeliever that he has been commanded to repent. The fact of the matter is your unbelieving neighbor, your family member, your coworker, they have been commanded by God to repent. Acts 17.30, therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. It doesn't become much more inclusive than that. All people everywhere should repent. I was reminded of some of the words of Jonathan Edwards this week in preparation for this lesson and his now infamous sermon these days, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I wanna read to you a small section from it and, and keep in mind this is the disposition, this is the position of the unbeliever. Edward said, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. Justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, are all you that never passed under a great change of heart, the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from the dead to a new state and before altogether unexperienced in life and light. Brothers and sisters, we must be like John the Baptist in leading the way in repentance for those we love. Unbeliever, because what you have heard is true and because Christ is alive today, God invites and also commands you to repent and believe. Turn from your rebellion and turn to God. Our calling the sinner to repentance really is fourfold. It's gonna be demonstrated in two uh, bullet points in your workbooks, but it's really fourfold. First, they must agree with God that they have disobeyed him and rebelled. They must agree that they have disobeyed. Secondly, they must abandon all attempts at self-righteousness. All attempts at self-righteousness and trying to be made right before God has to be abandoned. They must realize that God has revealed his plan of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Finally, they must pray asking him to forgive them of their sins and to help them. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Hebrews 2, 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. I encourage you this evening or sometime to, to focus on this section on the sinner's prayer. There is no precedent in scripture for reciting a prescribed prayer that ensures guaranteed salvation. 
Now there's no doubt that someone who repents is going to pray to God. We, we don't contest that, but it's the prescribed prayer that we're hesitant to lead people in. It's not that sinners shouldn't pray, it's that prayer is not the means of salvation. If authentic, it will be a response from a regenerated heart that was only able to happen because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, ending the conversation. Ending the conversation. When we bring the conversation to an end with someone who has positively responded to our gospel message, we want to do so in such a way that doesn't necessarily give false assurance of their salvation, but also doesn't cast unnecessary suspicion. We want to encourage them to make their calling and election sure by keeping with repentance. This is 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Let's pray that God would make us faithful and that we would have these conversations and see them happening here at Harvest, at Pecan Square, and all across North Lake. If you have a gospel conversation with someone, invite them to your house, invite them here to NBC. Or if it's a person from work and maybe they live far away, there are helpful tools online, certain church finders, whether it's the Master's Seminary, Nine Marks, there, there's ways to find sound churches to direct people to after having a gospel conversation. Now, I know that that was a lot in our times coming to an end. If, I believe it was 45 scripture references in your workbook, and in mine, I think there might have been 60. But as long as you commit those, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, there was a lot to take in right there, I know. But just remember the triple threat, okay? Really, I guess it'd be quadruple threat. We got four cards that we wanna commit to memory, these fundamentals of the faith. Also, as we come to a close, if you are interested in leading biblical evangelism here at North Lake Bible Church, you need to complete the worksheet number three in your workbook. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, we are overwhelmed at the doctrine of Christ this morning and the need of sinners like us to repent and believe. Father, we're so grateful that in your kindness you have removed the veil from our eyes that we might see the glory of Christ, that you have brought so many here to repentance and faith and you are continuing to conform us more and more into the image of your son. And Lord, it's our prayer that our study this morning and next week as we learn about more about the actual conversation, later we learn to handle rejections, but Father, that we would never turn loose of the sweet, sweet doctrines of Christ that you sent your only begotten to this earth to take our sin, to be our sin bearer. Father, stir our hearts this week. Allow us to meditate on these truths and to communicate them to friends and with family members and coworkers and neighbors across the street. Father, we need your strength to do that. The flesh is weak. Our flesh is so weak. Father, forgive us but we rejoice in your goodness and the power of your gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, I ask that you bless the remainder of this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.